podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles. With me today are Richard, Ian, Alexander, and a special guest, Matt Hammond. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing really good. Happy to be on the show. Thanks for coming on. So today we'll be talking about the Necromancer, and in our open topic, we'll be discussing and sharing some of our tournament tips. So we'll kick off by just a few questions for Matt. Uh, so Matt, I think you're the most well-known for being a part of the Duran Show podcast. How's that going? It's going really good. Uh, you know, you kind of go through, I think we've been publishing episodes for probably just over a year. And so you kind of go through ebbs and flows. We were pretty religious right when everybody was in quarantine about doing an episode every week or two weeks and kept that up for about six months. And right now we're in the stage of we'll record like once a month and publish every two months. So we're in a little bit of a rut, but it's going good. Still enjoying just talking about the game? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's it's in a good spot because I think the reason we're not publishing as many episodes is because we're all starting to play more. So uh, it's good for generating new content. Hopefully we can get to that stage as well soon. <laughs> I hope the whole world gets to that stage soon. Oh, I got to say that we were actually a bit inspired by the Duran show because I know you guys started like two months before us last year. And I think that was when everything locked down and then you guys started a podcast. And then we were like, hey, we've always talked about doing this. And then we're like, <laughs> it's, it doesn't seem that hard. So, yeah. Oh, <laughs> How did that's, you guys like that's just... Awesome come together hey guys do you want to start a band that's that's (laughs) that's pretty much how it went uh that's what being in quarantine does to everybody i think we all met you at uh the first time we met you was at nova 2019 Mm -hmm. uh were you around before the current edition of the game like when did you get into uh, this game and this hobby uh, I was not. So this this current edition was when I got into it. So um, about a month after the new edition dropped, my uh, so I've got two younger brothers or three younger brothers who play the game. And uh, they started talking to me about how they had something they could finally beat me at. And, uh, you know, I'm the older brother, so I've got a little bit of pride. And I was like, yeah, have you guys been dreaming again, sleeping? And what is it? And they're like, well, it's this it's this tabletop game. And I I'd never played any kind of a tabletop game before. I'm like, oh, it sounds uh, sounds pretty easy. I'll figure it out. So they came out and uh, they told me, well, you've got to buy some stuff before you can play. And uh, I went and bought the starter box set and put together a bunch of orcs. And I'm like, all right, and figured out the rules. And they proceeded to just smear me into the table like four games that we played during that trip. And it kind of made me mad. So I like kept studying and watching YouTube and I was like, I'm going to beat him. And so I've been hooked ever since. So what was that around Thanksgiving or September of 2018 is when this edition came out? Just after summer of 2018. Okay. I think yeah. It so like first week of September, I think. Okay. So right around that time, I've been an addict ever since. And I still lose to my brothers every time I play them. But the day is coming. The day is coming. <laughs> I think they got you hooked because uh, every time I see you at a tournament, you're running a different army. Well, yeah, and it's it's because it can never be my fault that I lose. It's because I had a bad army, right? So you just got to <laughs> buy more figures, and that'll fix the problem. <laughs> I know I've seen you run at least at least six or seven different armies. Like, do you have a favorite so far? Or are there other armies that you're looking to try still? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. I think there's still about seven armies that I don't own. Um, I but 
My favorite is uh, definitely Dol Guldur, Dark Powers of Dol Guldur. I just kind of like the way it's so gimmicky that no matter who you're playing or, or what, uh, whether it's a tournament or casual, it's just fun stuff you can do, and it keeps the game interesting. I'm also a big Hobbit Dwarf faction guy, so I love Iron Hills. I love Army of Thror. So those are my two. I probably, Honestly, I probably couldn't pick between those two which one's my favorite, but it's either Army of Thror or Dol Guldur. And then a lot of close seconds after that. So would you say you generally tend to uh, lean towards like the Hobbit armies? Because I think we've talked about like Hobbit versus Lord of the Rings armies. Does it just like feel different to you? Yeah, it does. Which my brothers say is proof that the the Hobbit armies had power creep. Because I came into the <laughs> I came into the game having no knowledge of any of it, and I just started looking at the rules. I'm like, well, this army's good. This army's good. And before you know it, I had all these Hobbit armies. So. Uh, I definitely prefer the Hobbit book for for army rules and stuff like that. Plus, I think it's a little bit easier. I mean, what do you guys think? I would say if you're new to the game, most of like the army bonuses and stuff for the Hobbit is like centric around the leader. So it's a little easier to pick up and take advantage of versus some of the synergies from the Lord of the Rings are probably a little more advanced. Yeah, I think it's definitely easier to build the list. Like you said, it's very straightforward. Whereas Lord of the Rings, you have to almost like tech certain individual troops like a sentinel you know or a specter or something like that yeah yeah a lot of the armies from the hobbit have like the main big hero and then your mainline troop and then like a couple of like elite troop options but like if you just go the main hero and the troops you're gonna do well with that kind of army list yeah i completely agree it's it's like azog right you, you just put a bunch of troops around and to keep them from getting bogged down and you move azog around and that army works okay as long as you don't find bows that's true. That's the secret. The bows find you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Ian will have a comeback for that one. Ah, uh, we will. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get to the army list. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt is joining us today to talk about the Necromancer. Excited to see what he has to say about that. So let's move on to our profile review, the Necromancer. Necromancer of Dol Guldur is from the Dark Powers of Dol Guldur list. Tell us what the woodsmen say. They speak of a necromancer living in Dol Guldur, a sorcerer who can summon the dead. The necromancer. He's a hero legend, 250 points, and he's a spirit, and he has the Dol Guldur keyword, as well as infantry and hero. He's move 6, fight 7, with a 4 plus shoot, strength 6, defense 8, 1 attack, 1 wound, courage 6, 3 might, 25 will, and he has an asterisk for the fate. He can call heroic channeling, heroic strength, and heroic challenge. Uh, his special rules are ancient evil, so it's like a harbinger but with an 18-inch range. Terror, will of evil which the ring rays have and the castellans have, which uh, they lose a will point if they were in combat that turn. Um, his next special rule is he cannot yet take physical form. Basically, he is um, the spirit version of Sauron. So obviously you can't have him and Sauron in the same army. And it allows him to use will points as fate if he wishes. His next special rule is Drain Soul, which any model that suffers a wound from the Necromancer in combat, if they fail to avoid it with fate, they are slain. 
So it's the same rule as what the King of the Dead has. And then his final special rule is the Master of the Nazgul, which like, he gives a plus one bonus to all the Unholy Resurrection rolls for the Nazgul of Dogoldur in your army list, as long as Necromancer is alive and on the board. His magical powers are Drain Courage, Transfix, Compel, Instill Fear, Shroud of Shadows, Your Staff is Broken, Chill Soul, Sap Will, and the FAQs also give him the addition of Curse as well. And all of these are at a 12-inch range other than Instill Fear. So general thoughts on this profile. Uh, Matt, would you like to start? How often do you take this when you play Dark Powers? So I pretty much, if I play it pure... I'm always taking the Necromancer. If I'm a lion in, it'll just because I'm just taking some Nazgul and putting it into uh, Azog's Hunters or Azog's uh, Legion list. So it's my favorite form of this army is when you have them. Um, so really, if, if we're just talking general thoughts, super fun profile. I'm sure we'll talk about how competitive he is based on his point structure. I honestly think he's a little bit overcosted, but it's just so much fun to play because when you have an army centered around him and all of the shenanigans he can pull with Shroud of Shadows or Commands, and then you've got some Ring Rays that bounce back, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. I just think he's super fun, and there is never a boring game with the Necromancer. So I love having him in there whenever I can figure out how to salvage 250 points. He's too expensive, though. Next so, edition, let's get him down to 220. Yeah, he, he does feel pretty expensive, but... I mean, with that army bonus is pretty good for him. So I get why, yeah, yeah, you, like you wouldn't want to take him outside of uh, like a green alliance or pure, I think, just because that army bonus makes him worth it. But I don't know. There's a lot of shenanigans you can pull with him, like you said. Do you think like maybe 600 is like the minimum points level you'd want to take him at? Like you wouldn't go lower than that with him? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the lists I made today was 600 because that's just absolutely the bottom ceiling. It's so hard to make anything if you're doing a pure list uh, below that. So 600 is just definitely a sweet spot. I think at 1,000 it's interesting because that's where you can probably start to ally in different armies successfully, in my opinion, if you're trying to keep a green alliance. And I mean, just with the master of the Nazgul rule, you're getting incrementally more value. So he's actually a hero that scales incredibly well. So I think the reason why we might think he's overcosted is because generally we play 800 or less in North America. So, yeah, he's really interesting. I mean, what stands out to me is the Shroud of Shadows. I know um, in our previous episode where we talked about Ashrak, his Shroud of Shadows is only spiders. So this got me thinking, like, what can we Shroud of Shadows? Like, <laughs> like a Balrog? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've brought the Necromancer and Smaug. <laughs> yeah. But we're talking about a thousand point list, so I mean, that works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think Charles has faced uh, Necromancer and uh, Azog, right? It was a 1,000 point tournament, and my opponent had a triple alliance of the three, so it was still green. So he still had the army bonus, and his strategy was to cast Shroud Shadows on Azog and then charge him in to kill my general. I actually played him twice in the same tournament, so it was terrifying. <laughs> Somehow I was able to beat him, but that combination is just insane. And the combination cost almost half his points, because it was 1,000 points. And those two models were almost almost 500. <laughs> he does have a really 
like the potential just based on his his list of spell is pretty like insane you know chill soul like it's not as good as sauron's it's you need a five but i think chill soul on any caster with such a big will store can be really crazy if you want to just get off that wounding a general victory point the thing that i find is a little bit odd is he casts transfix on a two plus but for some reason his compels on a four plus i think for most wraiths and wizards it would only have plus one casting values but it doesn't seem like it's a typo because the faq never addressed that doesn't mean it's not an error. The FAQ is not perfect. <laughs> yeah, it uh, almost seems like they penalize him for his army bonus. Because anytime you're trying to get into some of the harder ones, they know he's got a free dice. So it seems like his spell casting values and his ranges are kind of taking the army bonus into effect to me. What are your thoughts about like using him as a combat hero? And I know it doesn't really make sense because he has one attack and you don't want your caster so close to combats. But if you think about it... He has the curse magical power, and on paper, it doesn't sound like it's worth it because you're using one will, which is effectively one fate, to, on a four plus, remove one fate from your opponent's hero. I guess the combo you could do is you could cast curse on a hero that has one fate left and then charge in and then use your drain soul to take him out. I don't know. Is that something that you've considered? Uh, it is, and typically... I always like to have a banner next to him because his attack values, I mean, having one attack is pretty poor. And then a warhorn, hunter orc with a warhorn behind it. And the beauty of that is, is if you ever get to the point where he's ready to engage, you bring the hunter orc into combat with him and you've got fight seven. And then you go up to essentially the hunter orc has two attacks. Necromancer has one plus a banner. So essentially four dice at fight seven is pretty tough to beat. And it can just sit there sneakily. People aren't expecting it until you either compel into him or Shroud of Shadows into him, something like that. Because unless I'm reading it wrong, he can Shroud of Shadow himself and go through the back line really quick. And uh, that's a fun shenanigan that I like to mess with because people just don't expect it. Because you're trying to protect him, you're shielding him. They start to go uh, to try and block against other things. And all of a sudden he just goes through the line and it's a big problem for people. Yeah, I think it's, it's very... You gotta be very careful with when you use him in combat, though. Like, I think maybe you want to fight him in, like, two combats, three combats max in a game, because he does lose the will, and then you also don't want him just to get stuck in the front line. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an end-of-game play or a, a one-shot a one shot against an army leader or something, so you have to be yeah. really careful. I also, also say he looks really tanky, and most of the time he is, because you think 25 will, he can't be killed. Uh, but I'll tell you guys a story later. I've used 14 will staving off one wound from Legolas's bow, and that just cripples you. So <laughs> having to roll a that, four is an automatic. That actually reminds me of, uh, I'll let Alex talk more on this with his undying story, but the Floyd and Legolas story, it could essentially just take them out if you combo the two. So that's a that's a really scary thing, right? Oh, that was, um, yeah, that was playing Adam Troke at, at Nova in 2017. 20, yeah, 2017. Uh, playing Adam Troke in the second round. And I've got the Undying on a Fell Beast because this was last edition was worth taking a Fell Beast in that situation. And I got within range and uh, he used Floyd's special rule to take away the Undying's ability. He uses Willis Fate and he auto-hit me with Legless's, uh one shot, used his might points and knocked off the Undying and the Fell Beast, and that was my game. 
That was it. That was the whole game. From there, nice battle from, report. Pretty much. <laughs> like that, the short and sweet of it was at that point, it was pretty much over. Yeah. <laughs> you combine special rules like that, and it's, it's pretty devastating. You can essentially just take the Necromancer out character like that in a short amount of time. Depends how you combo it and what the situation is, too, but it's pretty mean. I do pretty, feel uh, bad for you, Alex, that that happened at Nova, but I honestly wish I could have seen it, because I'll bet your face was just like, no! Ian Ian was standing right beside me. He was at the next I, table over. I was on the table <laughs> beside. I remember looking at, like, the start of my second turn. I looked over at Alex's table. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, like, moving his guys up to try and attack the elves and dwarves. Cool. I got distracted by some stuff, and I looked back, like, five minutes later, and then, like, Kamul is just, like, sitting in his dead, like, off the table, and I was like... Alex, what what happened? <laughs> and yeah. he was just like sitting there shaking his head, just like uh Yeah, I was just that happened and I was just like, how's it going? And I'm just like at this point, I'm just having a blast because I'm like, I'm just gonna enjoy the rest of this game because I don't see a strategic way out of this. You know, the whole list kind of hinged on the undying on the fell beast. So when that goes out, I'm just sitting there being like, It's over. It's over. Um, right. There's one other thing I wanted to mention with the uh, the curse before I forget. You can combo that with the um, the Merkwood spiders that are in the list because their shooting attack it hits on five up, and if they hit a model with it, they're automatically paralyzed unless they expend a fate point. So what you can do is use the Necromancer to get rid of the whole bunch of heroes' fate, and then just hit them with the spiders, and that's that becomes much easier to do. Yeah, it's really scary too. People will plan about that, and they'll just be scared to death. What do you guys think about his range? I always thought his range was a little bit disappointing, because I, I kind of think of him as a caster that should go up against either Sauron or Saruman, and having only 12-inch spells was the only real thing that I, I don't like about this profile for his points. I mean, yeah, I'm disappointed because he literally is Sauron, but doesn't get the range of the 18 inches on the spell, and that's yeah, that, that's a little bit disappointing. You need that kind of range for the kind of list that you're going to bring. Not only does he only have a 12 inch range, but he also has a maximum move of six inches. So like he can't really compare to the threat of like a like a Saruman on horse or or um, the Witch King. And being about a hundred points more than other really good casters that's kind of why he suffers a bit so i i would say that you always want to play him with the army bonus and if you can try to take some nazgul of dogolder in there so that he can at least provide that buff to other models right yeah so i think going by our rating scale of between zero and ten i don't think i have used him very much this edition but uh, i've played against him in a few tournaments and i'm never really threatened really felt threatened by him on the table, especially a model that costs 250 points. But I can see there being a lot of utility, and he does have a lot of different spells. Like, if you know what you're doing, uh, he can really do a lot. Just, he's not an easy model to use. I'd probably give him, like, a probably give him like a 6 out of 10. Yeah, the biggest thing that comes to my mind, I think a lot like what Charles said, is, I mean, between the, we've already talked about the lacking spell range, which I think is huge, First thing that really hits me when I look at this profile in terms of what's going to be a problem is just the cost. I've talked about this a number of times when you have to sink that many points into a model to start building a list. So I think at that point, as good of a spellcaster as he is, 
he becomes really limited in what he can actually do. And because, of course, he can't do everything, he really kind of struggles there. Uh, I think I'll give him about a, about a six and a half. I just think he's a really high skill floor hero with, like, not so much payoff. So I just wish that, like, the skill that you put into it, you know, allows you to do more. So I, I think there's potential there. Like Matt said, this is a really fun profile. I think, honestly, competitively, probably a 4 out of 10. But if you're going to play pure, then I guess a 10 out of 10, because you're always going to take him. And... Always going to be there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys on that. The, like, the, the skill ceiling on this guy is, is, is really high, and it's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of games to like figure out how to use him correctly, but... I still think there's there's some stuff there. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm still biased from memories of using him last edition with the chill soul bomb, but I think he's still got something going on for him. So yeah, I'll say like in the in the pure list or with the with the army bonus probably like a six and a half. But then yeah, I maybe tend to agree with Richard. If you don't have that, it kind of drops down maybe to like five. Like this is all right otherwise. I, I I've seen Charles use the chill soul bomb in the last edition. I'm so jealous. I never got to try it. He he was the easiest model in the game to use. Because all you do is you show up to a game, and then you just go, okay, so for three terms in this game, I'm just going to take out this little block of warriors here, and this little block of warriors here, and this little block, and we're done. <laughs> well, Ideally, well, you want two Taskmasters whipping them in the back. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Taskmasters getting money back for some reason. Oh, God. <laughs> all right, so for my ranking, you guys have to let me give two ranks, because my first one is fun to play. Because if we, if you're talking about fun to play with, this is a 10 out of 10 for your opponent, too. Because there's some models that are like OP that I don't think are fun to play against, like Balrogs, Smog. It's unique. It's kind of got some cool rules, but people don't really enjoy it as much. It's always a good time when you're playing with the Necromancer or playing against him. But from a competitive standpoint, in the three years that I've been playing this game, I've gone to a fair amount of tournaments, and I have never once brought the Necromancer, even though he's my favorite model. So... My competitive ranking, I'm going to probably just go a five. Uh, and it should really be zero because I will never bring him to a tournament in this edition, I don't think. Uh, but I, I will just say if they change the Dark Denizens of Mirkwood to be a green alliance, that ranking goes way up to have the Spider Queen with his bonus and Shroud of Shadows. Or they change him to an 18-inch range in a FAQ. I know GW listens to your guys' podcast, so there's my little push. Give him 18-inch range, and that goes to an eight. Do they? Oh, they yes. definitely don't. Oh, they do. <laughs> it's a bold assumption, but I think we'll take the flattery. Yeah. <laughs> I think other, yeah, those changes are nice. If he was about 220, 225 points, I think that would also make it more viable. I feel like he needs, like, a big change to the profile. Like, you know, with a lot of profiles where we find where they're kind of, like, not quite there, we, we suggest changes, but I think this is just, like, maybe points value. Like, I, th- I think all the rules are solid. And they're, they're written fine. It's just a little expensive. I just want to be able to Shroud of Shadows the Spider Queen without losing the army bonus. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah. The Spider Queen lives just next door. Why can't they be green? Yeah, please. <laughs> It's not the same if you cast Shroud of Shadows on a Mirkwood Spider, right? Because it only fight two. Yeah. And I, I will say I've tried just having fun games to take him with Denizens and losing the army bonus and only having 25 will. He just becomes impotent. I know it's the kids might listen, so I'll use that word. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to some army lists with the Necromancer. And 
The first one will be one from Matt, and it's 600 points with the Necromancer. All right, so uh, you want me to walk through it? Yeah, so just break down what's in the list and give us a general strategy or battle plan that you have uh, with this list. All right, well, I'll, uh, I'll just go through the warbands, and then we'll talk about it. So obviously the first thing you've got in here is the Necromancer. He's the leader of the list. So with him, he's got Gundabad Orc Warriors, four of them with shield, two warriors with spears. He's got a Gundabad Orc Warrior with a banner and a shield. And I think I put a spear on him too. Yes, I did. And then he's got four Hunter Orc Warriors and a Mirkwood Spider. So that's Warband number one. Warband number two is uh, the Slayer of Men, who he is the Nazgul uh, that has the... I'll just call it, I think they call it something strength, but it's basically like burly two-handed special rule. So he gets a plus one to wound on everything. And he's brought seven Gundabad Orc Warriors. They're fully kitted out on them. I've got a shield, spear, and then he's got eight Hunter Orcs behind him. So that comes in at, I think, a whopping 29 models total, which at 600 points is not bad. You don't have a Warhorn in there, so courage is going to be a problem. And there is zero shooting. So you're going to be completely reliant on the Necromancer's spells to get range. You don't have any march, but you do have a striking hero that's burly two-handed, and you've got a lot of attacks if if uh, everybody understands the way hunter orcs go. So um, let's talk about general strategy. So the Mirkwood Spider is the closest thing you've got to range besides the Necromancer. Uh, we briefly talked about their their special rules. So... Range is their key. Being able to go over objects unimpeded uh, with pretty good distance, be able to do a throwing weapon at the end that has the chance of paralyzing somebody, pretty scary. Um, so the whole idea is you throw your ring wraith out in the middle, you try and get him killed immediately so that you can get a free six inches of movement on the resurrection roll. You save his might, uh, and you immediately try and get him into the back line, distracting you want him to die over and over. If he magically wins a fight, then he's probably going to do some wounds. And in the meantime, you are shielding all of your hunter orcs behind D6 Gundabad orc warriors. You bring the Gundabads up to the battle line. They only shield, so they get two attacks. Uh, and then you flank with the hunter orcs, which are two attack models, while the necromancer is doing shenanigans. As soon as you flanked with the hunter orcs, the Gundabad orcs will try and spear support, so you're three attacks where you can. Uh, so it's kind of like push up to the front, smear around, you've got a ring wraith in the back, and see what happens from there. That probably made zero sense to you guys, but it works perfectly in my head. <laughs> Watch out for shooting. So right, I don't think I would want to make this a shooting list, even though I think I could try to. I don't think I would. <laughs> I'll get that out of the way. <laughs> so I don't blame you for not taking any bows. You could take some if you had like extra points, but I feel like in this you're kind of a little strapped for points, like you want to use your extra points for spears and shields on the Gundabad, so yeah, not a huge deal. And then yeah, I, I think the best you can do if you come up against a shooting army is like, well I guess you put the ring wraith out front because you don't really care if he gets shot to pieces and then maybe hide the hunter orcs behind all the behind all the guys with shields and just hope you can get in there quick enough. But yeah, it'd be a little, it's a little rough without any march, but it is yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's nerve wracking on that. So being five might uh, for your army. At first glance, it didn't seem too bad, but then I realized three of the five might is on a necromancer. Mm -hmm. And just like, I don't like calling heroic moves with a big hero like that usually. I'm just wondering if the Witch King would be better than the Slayer of Men, because he gets an extra might point. 
Yeah, taking you to six. I think you could easily make a case for that. But then, well, he still has strike, and you got you can. I, I just am an addict to plus one to wound, so I think you're <laughs> right, Charles. I think technically you're right, but there is my uh, my biases to plus one to wound always coming in. Yeah, I don't know as well because I think I was going to touch on the same thing. There's there's a couple of these wraiths that are in the consideration, but I think with only two attacks, it's kind of like. The plus one to wound is nice, but I think similar to a hero like Gora is not like an auto take because if you have three attacks, then I think the plus one to wound is much better. <laughs> but, yeah, but the, the only three attack Mazgul in the list has to use a two-handed weapon all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he's always taken that wrong penalty. So, yeah, we so don't talk about that one. He, he's like yeah. the last one you choose out of all of them, unfortunately, which is yeah, that's super annoying. Now, now for the sake of debate, Charles, here's one thing I will say. The, the extra might would be awesome, but the way I use this is I want a Nazgul to die and get in the enemy's backline. And what I find a lot of times is with the Witch King, people don't necessarily worry about him too much with two attacks at strength four. But if you've got a Slayer of Men that's got plus one to wound, people find it impossible to ignore him. And there's just such a chance that he will die and resurrect right next to something they really don't want to lose. And it's just a threat that can't be ignored. Whereas I find the Witch King, they're fine just letting them do whatever and they come after the Necromancer. So that's my general feel on it. Fair enough. Yeah, it's like down to personal preference. I think I would prefer the one might, but... Having the plus one to wound is more scary, and I guess well, when you have a spellcaster like the Necromancer who can just transfix a model and you can throw this layer of men in and you can take out like a like a captain-sized hero in one turn if, if you get the trap or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or you could cast Shroud of Shadows on him too, and that'd be pretty scary. I got a question for you, Matt. Um, yes, sir. For these wraiths, do you, what kind of uses do you use the might for? Like, do you save them for the resurrection roll, or are you okay with spending it in combat? So it depends on who I'm playing. So for people who don't know, the resurrection roll takes a penalty if they're wounded with magic or elven-made weapons. So if I'm playing against something that brings a lot of that, I save the might for the resurrection rolls. If I am playing something other than that, I'm okay spending one of the mites for a move or a strike where it seems okay. I'll just play more risky, but I'll always try and save one might for a roll. So essentially, this is a four might list. And and they all have strike? Every single one of them. And that's in the FAQ. Oh, okay. It wasn't in the book, but they FAQ'd it to get strike for all of them. Okay. So I'll, I'll say that taking the Necromancer at 600 points, this is like as good as it would get because it's such an expensive model. And 29 models is solid, but I think it is low for like a fight three army that a lot of it can die really quickly, but then a lot of them are hunter orcs as well, so you get more dice in combat. So that kind of evens out a little bit. I think the low might is the main weakness, and as you said earlier, uh, the lack of uh, bodyguard or, or something to pass courage with. That also it can be an issue, but it shouldn't be too bad at 600 points, except if you go up against like a Return of the King. I, I don't know how you would do against that, for example. Badly. <laughs> I think you just you sit there and then you just let the, the the necromancer just curse one ghost a turn and see if you can out attrition them that way. Just go zap, zap, zap. Curse doesn't zap. Oh, you mean chill soul? Or sorry, uh, yeah, chill soul, yeah. Because oh. 
I think that would work because they'll have pretty low numbers. So if, if you zap like five or six ghosts, on a five four, plus, yeah, but you have the free dice. Like it's, I think yeah. you could win a game of attrition. But if if you have to like spread out, it's <laughs> it'd be tricky. I think you could do it though. I will say the the, the reason I think you guys all mentioned, and we didn't talk about this when we were talking about the necromancer profile, but I think every single one of you said it's a high skill cap, and I absolutely agree with that. The biggest reason is you don't want to end a game with a lot of will left for obvious reasons. You're paying for that. It is surprising how many dice you can throw at every spell and still have seven will left at the end of a game. I mean, it's shocking because I'm always conservative. I'm like, I'll just use three dice, two plus the free. And you always wind up with will left over. So the five plus is really not that bad to get just because you get to throw a lot of dice to state the obvious. My job on the Dern show is to be Captain Obvious. So you can see I'm picking up on that right here. You're right there. <laughs> well, now there's two Captain Obvious's on our show. Nice. Because I'm still here. <laughs> I think it's a solid list. I'll, I'll um, give it a hero of fortitude. Yeah, so just touching on that point, though, that's actually really interesting. So I'm spitballing here, but I'm guessing by the end of the game, assuming the Necromancer isn't dead, you probably want him to have, like, two to three will left. That I think you, that means you've gotten good use out of him. What do you, what do you guys think? It's kind of like walking a tightrope i find that from playing the witch king and the undying i imagine it's quite similar especially with the undying because he can also use his uh will as fate you don't want him left on the board with 10 will points but at the same time sometimes with the undying i'd start with the the 18 or whatever it is now or and i'd be throwing dice at spells and everything's going well and then you know one uh Warrior of Minas Tirith comes out of nowhere and hits him in the shins with a stick, and he loses seven will points trying to defend a wound. Next thing you know, you've got, like, three will left, and there's, like, four turns left, and you're like, there's no way! And at which point, you're just, like, a bit of butter spread over too much bread. Like, it's terrible. Yeah. I like to try and have about five will left when I think there's three turns left to play. That's always kind of the sweet spot. Because you've got a few spells that can still be potent, and then if they accidentally get into them... You're not running away if you lose one in combat. Yeah, but then how often do you bump into that warrior of Minas Tirith with the big stick that hits him in the shins? Because that happens to me all the time. That's why he's got the banner by him all the time. Now, if the banner gets sniped, all bets are off. Yeah, I think the guys brought up most of the points. And Matt, you said as well, shooting, of course. And in this range, like the Rangers of Ithilien, they're just a parasite. So there's plenty of them and annoying as hell. So... Yeah, I, I think a fortitude for me, but I don't see how you can really upgrade <laughs> this list at 600 points. For the first Sorry, independent hero rating on this episode, so somebody help me out with that. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Someone on the Dale episode got the first independent oh, right. hero rating. <laughs> I, 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 did, I did give our guest in the Dale episode an independent rating. Ooh. Did you? I don't even remember. <laughs> That's not his fault, though. That's the Windlance's fault. Yeah. Oh, he, right. He kind of asked for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was like, yeah, trash it, boys. <laughs> I don't like this list either. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I'm kind of with the other two. I think it's yeah, it's a fortitude list. It's going to win some games. going to lose some games. It's going to do all right. I was dubious about the, the choice of... Um, of Nazgul at first, but yeah, after hearing how you intend to use him, I think he is the like he is the right choice for that because you do want him to have a bit of killing power. Well, I guess we'll we'll get into the Nazgul. I think is probably the the best one in the next list. 
but to say that for them. But uh, yeah, keep it a fortitude. Hey, not to drone on, but I just had a thought we were all talking. At this points level, if you were going to make it work, I think maybe this is the only time you bring the Keeper of the Dungeons because he gets Charles Might. You go to Strength 5 and you still get the attacks with the plus one to wound. I never bring him, but this might be about the only time it makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. I, I mean, two wounds. I don't know, though, because I don't know if the Keeper of the Dungeons is better than a Nazgul that resurrects on a 2+. plus. Yeah. That's that's pretty hard to beat. But he, he is <laughs> yeah. a really efficient with the Shroud of Shadows, though. So if you want to go that kind of tactics at this points level, I think you take him. Because Strength 5, Burly, right, That's that, that'll do wounds. And I think he has a pick, so he can go up to Strength 6. Man, it's not bad. Man, he's a model that I love that I've never once taken. But anyways... All right, so I think for my rating, I'm very much going to stay the course. I think at the points value, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. You know, I think it, it's definitely, it looks like a fun list. Are you positioned probably to be a tournament favorite? Probably not. Can you definitely throw a wrench into some of the other tournament goers' aspirations? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I can see that. So yeah, I think a pretty solid in-between. Actually, on that note, Alex, I feel like this is one of those lists where, like, you, um, like, all the, like, the top table players are all, like, preparing and seeing what everybody else is doing, and then somebody shows up with, like, a necromancer list, and they're just like, I have the perfect counter somehow! Ha-ha! Wait, who has the perfect counter? The top table players? Or the guy with the necromancer? The necromancer, just, like, like, because it's off meta, but then it just kind of shows up and does its thing. I mean, I was going to say, you're, you're probably right there, because that's one of those lists where you show up and you're like, I'm expecting rangers, and I'm expecting Gondor, and I'm expecting elves, and somebody is like, necromancer, and you're like, I did not prepare. Okay, so the next list we're going to review is another one by Matt, and this one is 800 points. All right, so this one will sound kind of similar, but just plus 200 points. So, again, the big bad necromancer. In his warband, we've got six Gundabad orc warriors. Um, these guys have just got shield and sword. Uh, the next is six more warriors, and they've got, let me see what's on there, spear, so no shield, so D5 Gundabads. And then you've got the Gundabad orc with the shield and banner. And now four hunter orcs and a Merkwood spider. Uh, the next warband is, again, your slayer of men, and he's got, let's see, six Gundabad orc warriors with shield. I'm having a hard time even reading my own list here. This is bad. And then he's got two Gundabad Orc Warriors with Spear, and then four Hunter Orc Warriors with him. The next Nazgul is going to be controversial. It's the Lingering Shadow. Uh, and just so everybody knows, he's the Ring Wraith that his special ability is he can move three free inches per turn before priority is rolled, which is pretty sneaky. And with him, he's got four Gundabad Orc Warriors with Spear and Shield. And then a Gundabad Orc Warrior with a spear, four Hunter Orc Warriors, and another Merkwood Spider. So all told in here, I think you're at 43 models. You are at, what, seven might, and a lot of shenanigans that we can talk through. What do you guys think? I'm curious as to why you said the Lingering Shadow is controversial, because he's actually my favorite one. Yeah, he's he's the best. Anyone who thinks it's controversial can fight me on this. <laughs> nice. 
Well, you guys may or may not know this about me, but I am when it when it comes to tournament play, which this is a competitive podcast, I am a mite hoarder. So I very seldom come to an 800 point tournament sub 12 might. And so to come in with seven might is tough. So well, the controversial piece would be probably something Charles brought up at 600, which I'm not as worried about at 600, ironically, but at 800, seven might, I'm pretty scared of. So I would say the Witch King subbing out would be the move, but maybe you just do him to the Slayer of Men per our previous conversation. So what is the plan behind adding a Lingering of Shadow um, as opposed to like a second Slayer of Men? Because you can have two of those, right? You can. You can have two of those. Um, is it just for like objective-based scenarios that the Lingering Shadow could be better at? Not, not really, and that could be a factor, but my thinking on this is the strategy I said for the 600-point list is almost rinse and repeat here, except for now your spiders go out to the flanks. Uh, they've got a little bit of cover, and you're ready to spit in and paralyze something. And you've got two Nazgul that can go disrupt enemy heroes. And the Lingering Shadow having the ability to move three inches plus six when he dies, he can control the board. And at 800 points, what usually happens, if you're not careful, is by about the third or fourth round of combat, someone breaks through your lines and begins to charge into the Necromancer. And having the Lingering Shadow able for free, even if he's not dead, to hop back and forth from the line and get in where you need him is very helpful to make sure the Necromancer doesn't get bogged down or that you you just keep somebody else's hero tied up where you want it. Still no bows. (laughs) Well, you do have two spiders. I mean, that's kind of close. I think it's, I don't know, as evil side, I think it's always handy having some models that can shoot into combat. I guess the spiders can do that, but just for like dismounting heroes and stuff like that, I think... They're not great bows, the Hunter Orcs, but I'm just surprised you don't even have a few of them. Wait, so I guess you can now chill soul an enemy hero's horse without being resisted, right? Same train of thought as the Black Dart. So that can kind of mitigate that issue a little bit. True. Which uh, I hate I that rule, by the way. I think it, it might say something different in the spell description, so you might not be able to. Let's look at this bad boy here. Uh, chill soul... This power targets one enemy model within range. The target suffers a wound exactly as if it had been wounded in combat. If cast on a cavalry model, the attacker decides whether the rider or the mount suffers the wound. And it may be cast on a model engaged in close combat. So I agree with Richard. I kind of think that any utility you get with bows is made up for in the spell casting there. The only argument I have against that is that the spell is like taking one shot. And while it's a very good one-shot, because you don't have to worry about in the ways... Anybody that's seen my Mordor knows that I always like about half a dozen, even just orc warriors with bows, because the amount of just disruption that you can cause with that can be pretty astronomical. I, I don't know, Alex, because I would argue that a chill soul is way more consistent than six or even twelve orc trackers. For that one-off, it's very good. But in terms of volume, you stand a bit better chance maybe getting into your opponent's head. The other thing is, is you can't kill your own guys with the chill soul. You can do uh, that with bows. That's so. one of my favorites. Knock off my own orc warrior to stop them from getting a heroic combat off. I've never seen Charles look so afraid of my bows as when I'm shooting at myself. You guys, now there's a reason there's no bows in this. And it doesn't mean it's a good reason. And again, it's probably not the most competitive list anyways, but my Nova list, if you guys remember, I mean, I was doing fairly okay at Nova and I had 
a lot of bows on my hunter orcs. And I was just waiting for the time where I saw something I needed to shoot at. And of course, I played, uh, what was it, Angmar. And Gulivar, with that easy defense, I didn't land a single wound or even really hit him the whole time. So I've decided hitting on fives is garbage, and I banned them from my Dolgaldur army. Now, that wasn't a Dolgaldur list. That was an Azog's Hunter list, but same concept with these guys. So I guess on the topic of bows, I, I kind of want to touch on something else, but it kind of factors into the same thing. It's like it would be nice to get a march in the list so you can get a bit more movement. I don't know what you would lose to get that, though. Because you have a banner in there, right? Do you have a Warhorn in there? No, I didn't put it in. Okay. I got greedy on model count. Yeah, I was just trying to think of things that you could drop to, to free up points to get uh, like another captain in there. Because the captains aren't super expensive. So, I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, what do you lose? You lose like four, four, five orcs, and then you could get a captain in there? Like, like a, might, a hunter orc? Captain? You might have to take out the Merkwood Spider. Yeah, drop one of them, or drop both of them, really, and get a march. Um, but anyway, the point is, if yeah, if, if you did want to go that route and get, like, a hunter or a captain, you could green ally into Azog's Hunters, and then if you are going to take bows, take him from Azog's Hunters, and then you get bows that have a bit better shooting value if you want to, if you want to have those honesty bows, but, like, that's eh, not a big thing. Overall, I think I... Again, it was the same kind of thing. I was a little dubious about the choice of the Nazgul because I do really like the Lingering Shadow, or I guess the hero choices overall, because I do like the Lingering Shadow, but I think I would maybe use him in a different way. But the point that you brought up, him being able to jump back and help out the Necromancer, is actually, that that's that's really good, and that's nice. So you don't actually have to have, like, a dedicated model bodyguarding the Necromancer. He can go and do some stuff, and then, like you said, if he needs to, he can bounce back pretty easily. So he's kind of doing, like, two rolls in one, so I, I do like that. And then, yeah, the rest of the list is pretty good. Like, you got decent model count and stuff, and, like, good hitting power because you got a ton of hunter orcs. I don't know. I, I think I'm sitting out of Valor. I think so. <laughs> we'll see if uh, if my mic gets changed by what everybody else is. But right now, that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, I, I really like the Lingering Shadow. I, I think what makes it is he does his little three-inch move, right after priority so this is before any heroics so he gets the guaranteed initiative so you can do a lot with that when it comes to objectives or blocking lanes trapping models yeah so you know it paired with the necromancer this is just a shenanigan list to the t so i really like that aspect i would want the captain in there as well so i think this is why we were talking about how this is a tough list with the necromancer under a thousand points because I agree. At 800 points, you do want the two Nazgul to get that value. If you just take one, you don't feel like you're doing enough. And if you take two, then you're you're missing out on certain things. So, but I'll agree with Ian. I I think I think you might need to get a bit lucky in scenarios and matchups at a tournament. But I think you could podium, especially uh, I think with your knowledge of this list, I would give this a valor as well. Yeah, I have a hard time arguing with the reasoning that's been given. The special ability of the Lingering Shadow is just something that really, like Richard said, because it happens right after priority before heroics, the amount of disruption, again, me talking about being able to disrupt your opponent's plans, that you can do with that, with the Necromancer, just sounds like a real pain to deal with. I think it's probably a Valor with someone who knows this list inside out. It's, uh, it's pretty good. I like this list a lot more than the 600 points one. 
But I think at 800 points for a list with no shooting, I think you do need March. So it's going to be like what you said, it's Necromancer's fault. If it wasn't for the Necromancer, you would have March in there. And just looking at the profile, it's like 250 points. That's that's like one whole Warband and another Nazgul. So imagine if you had one more full Warband and then a fourth Nazgul. Oh man, that, that just feels a lot scarier than this. But I think you can definitely win games. It's just you don't want to come up against those scenarios where you need to like move all over the board or start far apart. It could it could be tough. So I'm gonna give it the same uh, rating. Or give it a hero fortitude, but I think it's more solid than your previous one. And and I do like the inclusion of the lingering shadow. Cool. What do you guys think of the Markwood spiders though? Just curious. We didn't spend a lot of time talking, but with their flanking ability and the swift movement, I think they're pretty cool. That's another problem with this list is they're expensive, but it's kind of hard not to take them. Coming from last edition, they used to be 25, so I actually think they're pretty good <laughs> for their points. I don't know. I mean, you also have access to Felwargs in the list, so if you want something that moves quick and is cheaper, you could always go for that. But that paralyzed mechanic, it's not super consistent, but when you can get it off, it could be it could be pretty scary, like charging it into a hero and getting that 5 up. I like them, but I just don't think they're good enough to spam because of the big base and the fight 2. The 2 that you have in your list is, is a perfect amount. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Um, like the, you want to have that in there for the shenanigans, and then, like we said earlier, the uh, synergy that it has with the necromancer is pretty good. I'm trying to think of what other movement options you could get. Oh, I guess you could go into Azog's Legion and get some war bats. You could do that mm-hmm. if you wanted, because the, they also have good movement. But I mean, like, I don't know. The spiders, despite their big base size, they still move through all the all terrain, right? They, they still have the that normal rules, so they should still be pretty mobile. So it's not the worst. Or if since they're green allies, you can even just grab a mercenary captain with like two two mercenaries or something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the green allies helps out. Okay, so we're gonna have a third list just for fun, and this is a thousand point list. And I've not played this, but I've gone to a tournament where there were four people that played this. This is an all-heroes list, and I was at Adepticon two years ago, and three, four people brought this list <laughs> out of the whole roster because it was exactly 1,000 points. And the list is the Necromancer of Dolgoldur, all nine Nazgul of Dolgoldur, and the Keeper of the Dungeon. And so 11 models, 25 might, 1,000 points. And Jacob Hall ended up winning that all-heroes event with this list, and Two of my three games were against this exact same list, so <laughs> it's definitely a lot of fun. Like Matt said, Necro- the Necromancer is a lot of fun to play with and against. And basically, the idea of the list is you have nine of your models that take forever to die. Necromancer is buffing all of them, and they kind of just create this wall with the Necromancer behind them casting spells, and they're constantly reviving. And and then you have the Keeper, which the Keeper usually died right away, or really quickly, because he doesn't have any fate, but basically have the Nazgul live as long as possible, resurrect as many times as possible, and kind of just grind away. And with so many might points, and all your Nazgul being able to heroic strike, you know, it's there's a lot of potential. I, I don't think anyone used the Shroud of Shadows combination with, with that on in the games that I played, but uh, you can add that in there too. You could do some sneaky assassinations. I feel like this list's main strategy is to induce rage in your opponent and get them to flip the table. Like, it's just, it's like, 
let's play a two-hour game and you don't get one single kill. <laughs> this is toxic in Middle Earth strategy battle game. This is why Lady of Light is so popular. <laughs> don't bring her into this. She's the real toxic one. <laughs> I feel like this is probably the grindiest all-hero list you could make. I, I, I don't think you could make one like tougher than this unless you just absolutely only took out took um the uh, Castellans. That might compare to this. Maybe. But the Castellans can't resurrect. Yeah, but they, they just yeah, they just last a long time. But I think this is still probably better. I so, just remember killing like each of the Nazgul like four or five times. Because you had to wait for them to roll a one and then a one. Um <laughs> I was using the Great Company, so I had three oven blades. So those ones were the heroes that were getting all the Nazgul kills. And the rest of the army is just hitting them, and they come back, hitting them, and then they come back. <laughs> this list is like the Advil of all hero lists. It's fast-acting and long-lasting. Look at it. I read the list, and I look at the amount of might points, and I start to flip the table before we've started the game. I watched Jay Claire on, uh, what is it, the uh, whatever their streaming service is where you can watch him play games, and it was a Hobbit edition, so it's an old video, but... He played this list against a Battle of Five Armies list, and he just absolutely destroyed the other army. So it's definitely pretty potent. I feel like it got nerfed big time when they added the new scenarios, because there's so much objective-based scenarios now that you're going to get that this list was going to struggle with. Because the way the rules read on this, if you're trying to sit like capture and control, like if you're spreading out and a Nazgul's sitting on it and he dies and the game ends... He counts as not really occupying that area. So I don't know. If you take out some of those objective scenarios, this list is pretty dang tough. I think definitely it's a top contender in all hero tournament setting. But I think still, maybe in a regular tournament, there's there's just some counters. Like you definitely don't want to come up against an elven army, especially if they feel Lady of Light. That would be almost an instant lose. And she's quite common. <laughs> One of the uh, times where Lothlorien is like the perfect counter. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the only time. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but I will say the last three tournaments I played in, uh, there was two in North Carolina and one in Nashville, and a guy brought all hero Dolgaldur, and he podiumed at each one. And that was an escalation, a thousand point, and a 750. So sometimes you can just magically avoid those bad counters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's definitely possible. So. I don't think it's quite a legend, but yeah, I, I think maybe a Valor for this one. Definitely podium potential. Yeah, normally with lists like this, my first critique is your model count is too low to, to be effective. But those nine Nazgul might as well be like 50 Nazgul. So I, I really don't know. Your models are uh, semi-immortal. Uh, it, it's pretty mean. I don't see it being easy to beat at all. Good luck keeping enough of your army around long enough to to stop them. Uh, You might be able to top them in some objective games, but they're going to be a pretty tight game just about every time regardless. So I'll give it a Valor as well. So biggest worry on this one is capture and control, but I've seen Charles give me a major loss on capture and control. I know how good he is at that, so... Since you're bringing it, Charles, you get a hero of valor on this one. <laughs> Thanks. I think I'm going a little meaner on this one. I didn't think I would be, but I'm kind of feeling like a fortitude for this one. I I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to say, though, because I haven't seen it in action. 
I'm feeling and, it's a fortitude. Plus, you, you feel Lady of Light in all your lists, so of course you're not scared. True, 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 true. Why would I be? <laughs> these piddly little Nazgul thingies. I scoff at them. Ha-ha. I'm just thinking because, of the, like, like you guys were mentioning, they're like, a lot of the scenarios, you have to spread out and move around a lot more. And then Matt brought up that important point where if they're not on the table at the end of the game, they are dead. They don't count for anything. So that's big. And then just, like, the ubiquitousness of elves at tournaments. Like, they show up all the time. And that's, that. like, pretty much any elven list is going to be a, a fairly hard counter to this. So I'm going to put it a fortitude for those reasons. But I still agree. Like, they, depending on matchups, you absolutely could podium take the whole tournament uh yeah it's just super matchup dependent and scenario dependent as most all hero lists are i think one thing i haven't mentioned is um it does say in the faq that you can put them all in one warband and deploy them together the keeper can't but i think the nazgul and the necromancer can all deploy together if you wanted to so that could be really good in maelstrom just deploy behind one of your enemies or warbands and just wipe them out do you know if they're when you kill them it counts as a counter for lords of battle it does counts as a point because you're wounding them and then they resurrect so yeah so they're beatable in that one well that's actually really interesting i say it's almost a weak scenario for them which is kind of counterintuitive to what most all hero ones are interesting yeah there's a lot of might regeneration going on for the opponent yeah yeah Yeah, you're 25 to be beaten (laughs) i saw the exact (laughs) moment in time that it hit ian it was like probably about half a second after Richard said it, and uh, Ian had quite the reaction. All right. Okay, let's move on to our open topic, which is uh, tournament tips. Today's open topic, we'll be sharing some tournament tips with everyone and essentially what you can do during a tournament to make your life easier, what you can do to make your tournament experience better or more successful. And uh, yeah, just uh, if you have an idea or something that you want to share, just just jump in. It's been a while since us in West Coast Hobbits have been to a tournament, but we can't wait to get back. And I know that Matt's already kind of started going to a few tournaments. So this will kind of be like a nice warm-up thinking about going to events again. I guess I'll start with with one rule that I think is really important, and that is to know all the scenarios well, especially the ones that you don't play as often, because sometimes there will be something there that people tend to forget. So, for example, in Seize the Prize, the end condition is a little bit different. Or in Contest of Champions and Lords of Battle, where your, your heroes can get Mike back. Like sometimes, like I know personally, I forget that a lot. And so it's really important, especially before a tournament, uh, to review all the scenarios, special rules, and just kind of know them before you, you start playing. I think just to add on to that, not just the scenarios, but just read the entire uh, tournament pack. Now there's different ways of calculating tournament points. I know with the new rules guide, that might be the new precedent, but as of right now, different tournament organizers might calculate points differently, you know, so I don't know if you guys think the same way, but uh, depending on how they calculate tournament points, you have to kind of adjust how you play a little bit as well. Absolutely. I'm going to tack on to both of those points. First of all, Richard, 
Amazing point. Love it. As a TO, it's so frustrating when you show up and like five people out of like 20 have read the tournament pack. <laughs> it's so annoying. So please, please, please read your tournament packs. It's just like it makes everything run smoother and it just makes everything easier. And then on like Charles's point about knowing the scenarios, personally, this kind of changes for me depending on what army I, I'm playing. But I always like to just come up with like brief strategies on how I want to play every scenario with the army that I have. Like, oh, if it's capture or domination, like, okay, I'm going to go for three objectives, hold that, and then try and get leader and breaking. And then do that, and then we'll see if the game progresses. If I can move on and grab other things, then I'll go do that. But have, like, a basic strategy of what you want to do. It's much easier to go into a game with a basic strategy rather than showing up and going, I'll just see what happens. Yeah, I also find sometimes, because the scenario packs now, we have, what is it, 18 match play scenarios now? course it was a lot easier to plan this out when there were six and then we had 12 and now we have 18 but they all still fall into core groups where the objectives of the game are relatively similar within you know there's three or four of each if you can figure out how you generally want to approach just those core aspects for instance domination capture and control Usually, oftentimes, if there's going to be a center objective, and then there's going to be two on my side, two on my opponent's side, or there's going to be the three at center and one on each side, you know, you want to figure that out. So when I saw this topic, I immediately had something jump into my mind, and you guys are going to laugh at me because it's not related to strategy, it's not related to rules, but I think it's really important for tournaments. And it's thinking about how are you going to move your army and all your stuff around from table to table when there's not a lot of time or there's stress. Because you see people who show up and they haven't thought about, okay, how am I actually going to keep track of my army and get ready to deploy it? And so having a modular system where you can put all your tools, measuring devices, have your warbands ready to deploy on a nice tray, organized so you're not trying to sort out your warbands right when the game starts, creates so much time and takes so much stress away that you can actually pay attention to strategy and pay attention to the scenario. So... Thinking through how are you going to keep track of your models and make sure they're ready to deploy, I think is the biggest tip I ever worry about. That's actually, that's a really good point. I think after the end of, personally, at, at the end of all my games, I always like to organize my stuff into warbands. And I'm lazy, so I don't make anything to carry it with, but I just pick whichever one of my books is nearest that I'm not going to need for the first like 20 minutes or whatever while we're setting up. And I just lay out all my warbands on that book that I have. And it's easy enough as a <laughs> carrying tray. But yeah, that's a really good point. I could definitely learn a, a point from that, actually. I think it's it's one of those in-between things that you don't think about because it's not technically really part of the game or part of the tournament. But the amount of time I spend worried more about being able to deploy and move from one table to the next and not enough about, you know, what the board looks like. Where's the terrain? What's the scenario? How am I going to put my army in a position at the very beginning of the game to be as successful as possible? I'm more worried about, do I have all my models? What's going on? And when I mess that up, but then I'm also a klutz. So if you're doing that, my biggest piece of advice after that is if you're going to put them on a book, you better have an extra jar of super glue. Because I've broken at least one model in like every tournament dropped it or something and then stumbled over to try and find it and stepped on a Moranan orc every time. Alex's uh Guritz's pick is still missing to this day. No, I have the pick. 
Oh, you found uh, it? That one's, we found the pick at the end of that tournament, actually. I guess along that same topic, it's also really important, at least for me, is, is to note down not only your own hero's heroic stats, but also your opponent's. Not necessarily because you think your opponent might cheat or forget something, but just so you, you can kind of keep track of their resources during the game. And, you know, if you're playing like a burnout strategy, you can compare what you have left versus what they have left. And it helps you make decisions a lot easier during the game, whether to use a might or not, whether to burn this fate or not, just seeing what your opponent has. Okay, just to switch gears a bit, here's a controversial one. I would say at a two-day tournament, if you are doing extremely well and you really want to win, you know, try not to go hard on the liquor afterwards. Uh, usually there's some sort of get together. <laughs> like, you know, um, of course like a few is fine, but you know. Not more than you. 20. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't done it, but our resident drinker here, Ian, he often competes for the podium in our local tournaments, but he shows up like with hangovers. To be fair, my usual game day normally, traditionally, has been Sunday like mornings and, and afternoons. And throughout like the past five years, I've also been playing rugby on Saturdays. So Saturday night ends up being a party night. So, you know, this kind of goes into like the practice how you play, right? So if I practice hungover, I should play hungover. <laughs> Well, all I'll say is I have a very good record against Ian on Sundays at tournaments. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> so I guess the lesson there is if you're going to drink too, then make sure your biggest competition is also drinking. <laughs> so the strategy is uh, after day one at the bar, who to buy drinks for? Exactly. That's like Mouth of Saruman <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> And, oh, let me buy and we drink. know that Richard hasn't built up a tolerance, so we're going to target him next time. Peer <laughs> pressure. Just print out the list of the top tables at the end of day one. Like, okay, the top five. Let's go. People are like, how come you're only buying half the guy's drinks? <laughs> There's a reason. I'll explain later. <laughs> but, okay. Also, on that note, though, something that is small that I think makes a big difference is bring a, a bottle of water to every day like every game day you have at least at a minimum not even if you're going to be hung over just in general you're doing a lot of talking and like a lot of standing and moving around and you just you just end up getting really really thirsty and some comfy shoes man yeah uh, standing a long yeah. time yeah yes especially on one of those days where you play four games in a day you get to the fourth game you know, you're in what becomes like it's a stuffy room. You've been standing for eight hours. You know, you've had one meal and it's usually not that great. And you get to the final game and you've got a splitting headache from not drinking any water. That's a preventable issue. I mean, that's that's a good point. Like the endurance. Uh, like I find that during practice games, there's of course you can do like a one off. But before like a really, really big premiere event. We've had practice sessions where you play maybe two or maybe even three in one day, and it actually helps your endurance a lot where you can actually focus on your last game. Because, yeah, I mean, I remember at Nova, I'm sure you guys do too, like by the last game, everyone was just walking around like zombies. So it's like whoever could work with best the amount of brain cells they have left usually won the game. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that was our first time playing in a six-game tournament, and you feel it. You feel it by, like, yeah. game five. And I don't want to say don't play as hard in your first few games because you kind of want to try your best in all of your games, right? Mm-hmm. But kind of just, like, don't over-push yourself that by the middle of the tournament, you're kind of, like, ready to go home. Because I've definitely seen some players do that before where halfway through the tournament, they're like, oh, still two more games? Like, I don't know if I even want to play the last two games. Yeah. Um, so kind of, like, think ahead a little bit about how many games you have left and... I don't know. Just don't burn out. <laughs> that, Take breaks. That, that feeds into what, what the next point I wanted to bring up is remember, like, remind yourself to sit down if you have chairs. Like, if your opponent is doing moves and stuff, you don't need to be, like, leaning over the whole table watching them do every move. Like, sit down, relax your back muscles, and, like, save some of your energy. Because, like, I've definitely done that before. Like, first two games, I'm like, oh, yeah, watching everything. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good move. Oh, yeah, you sure you can, like, do all that and, like, whatever. And then by game three, it's just like, oh, my God, my back hurts. I My feet hurt. Everything is, is achy. One thing I find is that I get a little bit, like, worked up before the first game or two. Mentally, I'm just kind of, like, constantly, my mind is racing for that first game. You just want to get into it. You're a little bit nervous that you're not going to do well. Problem is, sometimes that really drains the energy out of you. For me, honestly, I contribute a bit to anxiety. Like, I almost get, like, anxious before the first game because I want to do well in the whole tournament. You know you have to get off to a good start. I try and get excited and really look forward to game one to stop the anxiety from setting in. Or you want to try not to use up all of your energy in that first game or two. Because it's a mental game, too. Alex, I feel like I can introduce you to my friend Jack Daniels, and he will help with that. But, of course, that Richard's <laughs> tip might not. You, you can't do that because we just had a tip against that. Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Richard might disagree, but my, my friend can really help with that anxiety. Well, see, I guess no, that no, depends no. entirely on how your first and second games go. <laughs> <laughs> they go bad poorly then by all means no i i highly encourage anyone to take that advice please <laughs> be my guest alex i think the thing to remember at least what i can say is just don't overthink it we all get a little bit nervous going in if, if we're trying to win it but kind of just wait like you can't really do anything about it until you see who your first opponent is and what army you're facing so you know just don't overthink it and just i would just tell myself like I won't think about it too much until I'm deploying and I know who my opponent is, and then I'll focus on how to fight that army. Focus on one thing at a time as they come. And if you think about it, that's probably usually the game that you are most able to lose. If you think about it, uh, Ian, he lost his first game at Nova, but then he ended up sixth. So if you're going to go for the submarine strategy, like it's much better than losing the last game. So. That was totally deliberate, 100%. My mental just like... <laughs> that was the plan the whole time. That was the plan, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, Alex, I guess the best advice I would have for that is just, like, think of, like, playing a game like you would with painting, right? When you're painting, you're going to have something super focused, right? So, like, in front of your face for a while. But you got to remember to just take out, like, look up, look around, look at something in the distance. So for that, like, in a tournament... After, like, a couple turns, if we're, like, lines are clashing, my opponent's doing their moves and nothing super important is happening, I like to just take, like, a minute or two just to, like, walk around, look at other games, see what's going on, maybe say a couple words to, like, one of my buddies, right? And then and then go back to the game. It's, it's really helpful to just refresh you a little bit. On a slightly lighter note, 
Matt, I wanted to ask if you had any tips for uh, tournaments that you travel to outside your local area, because I guess a quick one for me is personally, like, it's hard for me to share a hotel room. It's hard for me to get some sleep. So that can make it tough for tournament day. Yeah. Yeah. That. Well, I'm kind of spoiled on that because I always, I usually travel with my brothers. So, you know, it's a little easier to travel with family and all that. So it works out. But I, the only thing I can say for traveling is it kind of goes back to just have all your stuff packed and organized and easy to get on a plane. If you're building a display board ahead of time, think about how to make it modular in nature that can go into a suitcase. I know a lot of people have built these amazing things and then they realize, how am I going to get it on a plane? So think through the entire travel experience all the way and make sure that you're you're accounting for that, not just putting everything in a cardboard box and being surprised when it's all ruined when you get there. I think just building on that, once you show up, since my first tip was kind of not strategy related, you know, if you travel to a tournament, Richard, to your point, and you get there and you're not familiar with the scenarios or the boards, the scenery is what I was trying to say. You really need to think about, you know, because we all have our local game scenes where we've seen the same terrain set up and we're used to it. But you go to a new place like Nova where there's this elaborate scenery or elaborate terrain. You have to think about how will my army and the strategy that I want to use, where on this board do I want to fight? And that really affects your deployment. So I think that's my biggest tip is take some time after you see your opponent's army, after you use Charles' tip of thinking through what resources do they have. Look at the board and just decide where do I want this battle to go down and do everything you can in the deployment to influence the fight to occur where you want it to when the lines do clash. That's really interesting because um, I know different communities, different metas, they like to play different amounts of terrain. So if you're going to an international event, you might be playing someone who's completely used to something different. So you want to spend the first couple of minutes kind of talking over what is difficult terrain. Can I walk through that door? Can cavalry go through this door? Because it's much better to get that out of the way than arguing in the middle of the game and then tie up a judge and spend like a 10 minutes on something that doesn't even matter in the end, right? Um, 100%. And like Matt said, looking at the terrain and maybe even like manage your time by looking at the terrain. Like if this army was to play on this board, how long would it take to actually move and get to combat? Will I have time in this two-hour window to capture my objectives? And... On the same note, I recommend either having like your phone in front of you so you can check time more easily or you could see the countdown clock at the front of the gaming hall just so you don't lose track of time. Because I feel like if you're a slower player or if you're playing a horde army with more models, sometimes you can like run out of time to to get all your victory points. On the terrain thing, I like to like you're saying, like do like the pre-trip check, pre-flight check, you know, with your opponent, you go over all the terrain. And then I also just quickly at a minimum i like to just go okay i have this hero this hero this hero this hero do you know what they can do okay yeah you do perfect oh you don't okay they, they have this special rule this special rule, this special rule so there's nothing like they're nothing crazy where they're like super upset and then you just go oh so what do you have and just like a quick run through so you know exactly what's going on so you're not surprised by anything popping up i mean this never happened to me before but i'd be thoroughly upset if you know 50 minutes into a game somebody goes oh and here's this Warband of Goblin Mercenaries. You go, ha <laughs> This didn't happen to me, but I talked to someone who said that they played against an army that had a proxy. They used the Gilglad model to proxy as one of the 
like a Gondor hero or something, something completely different. And like half the game, he thought it was Gilgalad. And then when he finally moved a model base to base to fight it, his opponent told him that it wasn't. And then it, it like threw him off. So that example is like, it's not going to happen a lot. But like Ian said, you got to make sure you know what your opponent has. And, you know, and, and on that, I, I think we kind of talked about it in knowing your opponent's resources, but I think I'll just note down having something to keep track of resources spent both on your side and their side, because it's stressful in a tournament and you're watching the clock and everything. And it's especially like our model that we were talking about today, the Necromancer, 25 will plus a free one. It's really easy to, to honestly make a mistake and lose track of will and it can really impact the game negatively so making sure you have dry erase markers a stat sheet some system that works for you that you've thought out to be able to track what resources are spent throughout the game yeah and i think if you keep um, a good track of time you'll be able to kind of estimate how many turns you'll be able to cast and kind of distribute your will and kind of come to the conclusion okay if i use three will a turn it'd be at a good pace i I know everybody has their different preferences. I really like the um, the dice tray ones. Assuming you have like space to put them out, I just find it's very easy. So you can set them up on the side of the table. You know how much will you have, might will fate you have, and then your opponent can easily see as well. So then there's there's not like a lot of ambiguity about what stats you guys have, which I find does kind of happen if one of you guys just has like a small sheet of paper and you're writing everything down there, right? I personally prefer that. I know some people don't like it because they can't get bumped and then the stats can go crazy. I don't think I've ever had that happen to me, but that is definitely a concern. Also, I before I had them, I did not like having little like movement sticks that had that are like six inches long or like twelve inches long. But then I ended up just just getting them as as like a tournament prize. And that now that I have them, they're, they're amazing. They're so good. Because, like, a really big thing I find is, like, if you're measuring and there's, like, a whole bunch of terrain in the way with a tape measure and you're, like, half a foot up or, like, a foot above trying to, like, eye it out, you end up adding, like, an inch or half an inch to measurements a lot of the time. So it's just so much easier to visually see charge ranges and stuff. So those are super helpful. You don't even need to, like, buy one. You can just make one that's, like, a good reference and it's easy to see. So you can put one down and go, okay, this stick, and then there's half an inch, so you definitely can't charge me this turn. Boom, easy. So I, I'm definitely an advocate for having those. I think those tokens from like the Generals pack and the starter set, they're helpful. And like the sticks you're talking about, I don't think you need them, but you just find some way to keep track of them. Like I didn't buy any of those profile cards that came out, but I'm fine with just like one of those custom 3D printed um, Might Wolf Fate trackers, as long as you have something like that. Anything that can help you take like strain off of your brain. Like, like all these kind of small things, so you're not, like, constantly stressed about all this stuff. It's easier for you to relax and just, like, make decisions in the game rather than going, oh, I don't know if I measured that correctly, blah, 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 or, oh, I got to remember to go and, like, write down all my stats, and, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that has been our open topic um, on our tournament tips. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Matt, for coming on our podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You guys, I, I can't wait to have another tournament up in your area so I can come see all of you and play a game and drink a beer, even though that was, you know, Give day Richard one. some beers. <laughs> Sunday night. Sunday night, I'll indulge. All right. <laughs> going to have to hold you to that. And, yeah, I think that's about it. You can find all of our army lists, including the lists from Matt today featured in the episode. You can find it on our Facebook page. Just search Into the West podcast. 
look forward to the next episode. And yep, see you all then.